Welcome to the Triathlete Hour. I'm Kelly O'Mara, your host and editor-in-chief of Triathlete Magazine. Now this week, we have a bit of a hodgepodge of a show for you, a bunch of things we know you'll want to hear. We're talking to our very own managing editor and six-time 70.3 champion, Emma Kate Lindbury. EK tells us all about how she found and fell in love with triathlon when she was assigned to cover a race for the newspaper where she worked, and how it changed her dream from working for a big newspaper in the UK to becoming a pro triathlete instead. She tells us about some of her craziest stories, how and why she made the jump to move to the US, and what she wishes she had known when she started. First up, though, we have two other quick things for you. Our senior editor, Liz Hitchens, tells us about the new COVID protocols at the Ironman event that went off in Arizona, what it was like, what you can expect for the future, and how it went. And then our writer, Brad Culp, shares his insights and predictions for the biggest race of the year, the PTO Championships in Daytona, with $1 million on the line. All of that after this break. Even though most of us aren't racing right now, we're all still focused on our overall health and well-being. That's where MitoQ comes in. Like everything else in our body, our mitochondria become less efficient as we age. From the age of 30 on, levels of CoQ10 in the mitochondria can decline by 10% with each passing decade. This means our body's natural resilience also declines, which can impact our training, recovery, immunity, digestion, sleep, stress, hormones, and brain power. This is why a new supplement called MitoQ is becoming increasingly popular among athletes. It helps the body to better absorb intense training periods and recover faster. Some athletes have even noted improved VO2 max, heart rate variability, and lactate thresholds. When you combine those things with not needing as long to recover and being able to maintain more intense training cycles, you can see why it might result in performance gains. To learn more about MitoQ's unique formula, independent clinical trials, and athlete testimonials, visit www.mitoq.com. That's M-I-T-O-Q.com. All right, this week we're talking to our senior digital editor, Liz Hitchens, who lives in Phoenix. So Liz was at the 70.3 in Phoenix a couple weeks ago, which was the first, let me get this right, the first Ironman brand event since the start of the pandemic back in the U.S. So it's the first time we saw all their new protocols. Liz, overall, did, did it seem like people were following the rules, not following the rules? What were the rules? Yeah, it was interesting. Um, I went in very skeptical about the whole thing. Um, and I felt pretty safe all along. It was my husband who was racing. And then I went and just spectated. Um, the check-in was where they kind of set the tone. So the day before, everybody went and they had a QR code to identify so you're not carrying any paperwork or anything. They had to show that as soon as they got in. And then they had a whole system where you got like almost like a valet ticket for your bike. They held onto your bike in a holding area while you went through the check-in. Um, oh, and beforehand, they all had to come up with a time frame for when to show up so everybody's not there all at the same time. And then, I mean, the whole check-in process was pretty smooth. Um, I went there. I was kind of planning on keeping my distance, but I did need to get my media pass, so I had to get in through to the actual race area and even as a spectator to get anywhere near this isn't even the athlete area to get anywhere near where the transition was and all of that I had to get my temperature taken and I had to verbally acknowledge that I had no COVID symptoms or knew of anyone in the last 14 days so it was definitely like setting the tone on that first day and they gave everyone a wristband which I don't from there I'm not really sure what that was for because on race day there was no wristband situation but 
it was definitely setting the tone right on the first day um, when everyone checked in and dropped off their bikes and it definitely, uh, and of course, masks were required within that area. So it almost was like they took the entire Ironman Village area of what you would call, which was Tempe Beach Park, basically, for this race, and completely barricaded it off. And in order to be in that area, you kind of had to be willing to follow the COVID protocols. Now, outside of that, I mean, kind of is what right. it is. But um, I mean, within Maricopa County, there's a mask coordinate. So everyone's pretty used to wearing masks around here. But um but yeah, I've definitely felt safe um, prior to race day. And then the race day, the race day situation was definitely interesting as well. I mean, a lot of our readers were asking kind of what were the protocols. And so let's kind of, I mean, okay, you, you just explained to us how it's, how they checked in. But then once they got to race day, you know, how spaced out was transition? How did, did people have to come to transition at a certain time? Was it set no, like so that? that is like, I think after how careful they were the day before, I mean, the morning of it just kind of... Um, Everybody had to have masks on within the transition area. When we arrived, it, it wasn't barricaded off because I think they needed the barricades for the swim start. So there wasn't any kind of requirement for a mask or anything right around transition. They kept verbally asking spectators, please keep your distance. Please wear a mask. Please. There weren't a ton of people there, though, at like 5 a.m. And it's already a much smaller. So this race would normally be well over 2,000 people. And it, I looked, it had a little over 700 plus a couple relays. So it was definitely smaller anyway. Um, but then within transition, the athletes definitely had to wear a mask. There was no body marking, no morning clothes bags. So people just had their transition bags kind of old school in transition with them. Um, but yeah, other than that, the racks were maybe a little bit more spread out. But I asked my husband, I was like, did you have six feet? And he was like, definitely not. So I think they tried as much as they could, but it was, it was still, I think too, the thing that kind of, um, everyone was super respectful and acknowledged the rules and had the masks on and seemed to be this like awareness that this was mm -hmm. like an opportunity, you know, like no one they knew had raced, all their friends haven't raced and we're here and we get to do this race, but there's still the race morning nerves. And I think that at a certain point that becomes the priority, right? right. So you know, like I saw someone panicking about their, it was really hot the day. So there were prior, so there were definitely some pop tubes in transition and panicking about a pop tire running, you know? So at that point, I think that the race instincts start to take over right. a little bit, the nerves. I do think everyone was as careful as they could be wearing masks and trying to keep their distance. But the, the race morning was what it was really. I mean, there's like a normal, everybody's in yeah. there at the exact same time, you know? So, um, the biggest difference, I think, so actual race morning, again, no, I don't know that everybody could have kept six feet apart. Everybody did have masks on. But what I was most impressed with was the way they did the swim start, because okay. I thought that that was going to be, how do you possibly get all of these people into the water right. without them getting too close to each other? And so normally, uh, last year, the swim start was on the east side of the lake, and they moved it to the west side. And I think it was probably for this reason, I don't, I don't know for sure. But there's a huge grass area on the west end of the lake. And so they were able to put these barriers out and corral people almost like you would for a half marathon or a big running race. And so corral people by their anticipated swim finish time. And so the very fastest people 35 minutes and under lined up right at the swim start on X's that were six feet apart. 
And then behind that, um, the slower the slower swimmers were spread out within these corrals, and they had white spots all over the grass that were six feet apart. Okay. So, so then, and then, thankfully, the rolling start made it very a very natural way to get people in one at a time. So everyone had their masks on, and then they had trash cans right at the swim start. And so when right before you jumped in is when you took the mask off. So I actually thought like that was the most well thought out. That was the part I thought was going to be. Yeah, because like other races, yeah, we've seen like sure they're spaced out when they get in, but we we've seen like just very clumped up kind of waiting to get in yes, and it's yes. been kind of a mess but it sounds like it was pretty yeah. spaced out yeah yeah and then but then you know like I saw when I was posting stuff on our social media accounts um people say well how do they keep their distance when they get out of the water and it's like at that point it's a race right so that from that point on it felt like a very normal race experience so on the bike they were still handed um water just the person had a mask on and gloves on um and then on the run the tables, the aid stations, it was all self-serve. So they had volunteers there in masks um, placing everything, but you kind of went up and chose what you needed. So, okay. um, so yeah, so that was, that was pretty good. It did start to get um, a little bit more crowded with the spectators to like, there weren't a ton of spectators at the start, but I would say by the time athletes were finishing, there were a lot more people. And I felt like, I don't know if it was the reminders from people at the beginning or what, but by the end, the spectators were a little less, a little lax, a little, well, and it started to get into the nineties. And so, you know, I don't know, not that it's that difficult to wear a mask when it's 90 outside, but, um, people got hot, people got tired. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, and then what they did do is I think they moved those barriers from where the swim start was. They moved the barriers and surrounded again, Tempe. So they, that was like an in race process for them to take the barriers and surround Tempe beach park again. And then in order to enter that when people were finishing, so anywhere near the finish line, not even just right in the finish line, you had to have a mask on. Now, I saw some people put the mask on, walk in and take it off. Um, They did have security walking around reminding people to put masks on. But um, that was another level. And then at the finish line, athletes um, were... um, they, you grabbed your own finish, finish metal, like grabbed your own water, took your own chip off and put it in a bucket. Um, and then you had to put a mask on before leaving. Again, some athletes put it on and walked a few feet off and then kind of brought it down a little bit. But, um, so yeah, I think the efforts were as much as they could be given this kind of endurance event with as many people. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think they were told like, these are protocols you have to follow by the city and they pretty much followed them and it's all like risk mitigation, right? It's not elimination of risk it's the thing i think a lot of people have been wondering about and i don't think you have an answer and i know iron man doesn't ask them <laughs> is like the the travel and the community spread and, and you so you said there weren't that many spectators usually this is a local race but i know you told me there were quite a few people yeah. who actually traveled in from yeah, other I mean, I don't places have any stats and i don't want to like someone <laughs> to go research this on me but my husband is very very familiar with the local athletes in his age group and so like last year he knew where he placed and Mm kind of looked at the start list this year and there were no one within like the top 15 from his age group were even on the start list so then when he did see the start list and I saw the top people who were finishing kind of around his age group again it seemed like a lot of people who maybe really want that 70.3 world spot Mm -hmm. and maybe traveled in again I'm really speculating here but they're from other places not from Arizona um, not familiar names to us. We're really familiar with the Arizona triathlon community. So, um, so that was definitely interesting. Yeah. So maybe not the like local (laughs) 
safety feel, you know, because you're adding travel as an element, but um, definitely interesting. For sure. And then you guys obviously have Ironman Arizona coming up in five weeks, four weeks, something like that? Uh, November 22nd. So yeah, it's coming up. Yeah. Right. So I know the city's obviously paying a lot of attention to how this went to make sure how Ironman Arizona went. Everyone's paying attention because this is going to kind of be a model for pretty much all the U.S. events even though mostly the U.S. events are in Florida, Arizona, Texas for now. But next year, too, I'm right. sure we're going to see all these same guidelines. So you think, is there anything that you think they're going to change or adjust for the full? How is the full going to, I mean, right now it seems like it's going to go forward right now. Yeah, I know. That's what's so tricky, right, with the numbers kind of hovering a little bit higher. Um, I I don't know. I know I would be curious to know how many people are left as registrants because I know of a handful of people who were signed up for this and have deferred to next year or another race. So I'm curious how many people they have left and if it'll be a smaller field. I do know that um, the bike course is going to be 74.6 miles. And I think the bigger thing is that... The bike course is not going to be 112 miles? No, it's not going to be 112 (laughs) miles. I think even... Okay, so even if we're just looking at that, the bigger thing is if anybody's done the 70.3 Arizona bike course, which is what this new course is based off of, I think they're basically adding a lap. So it was three laps and now it's going to be four. Is that thing is brutal. Like, I will never do that race again. (laughs) (laughs) I did it once and that was good, but... um, you know, it's, so I, ah, it has, each lap has somewhere around 24 turns or U-turns. Okay. So if you're looking at that as one lap times potentially four laps, it's almost a hundred, like you're never on a super long stretch in your arrow position because it's, they're trying to keep it within the city of Tempe and limit road closures. And so I know it's very expensive for them to get over onto the reservation. So I don't know if that's part of it, if like the cost prohibits it if they don't have the full field right again okay. I'm speculating here but i i wrote a feature on tempe and how all this works a couple years ago and interviewed a bunch of people and i know that for a long time they've been trying to get the 70.3 course out there on the beeline highway and they haven't been able to because of cost and so i'm guessing that there's some kind of it could also have to do with covid right and restrictions right. and them not wanting athletes on their reservation and so well, the res- sure. yeah the reservations are pretty strict you really can't yeah. go on them right now so yeah yeah and it's just a stretch of road that they're required mm-hmm. to go over. It's not the whole highway, mm-hmm. but, um, but yeah, so it'll be interesting. I think that that, that will be a different experience for people. I hope <laughs> that'll be some sore quads from all the up and downs. In, in and <laughs> battle. But, um, but yeah, I think, I don't know. I know that they were using it as a learning experience. I think it went off pretty well from what I saw. I didn't see anything that was completely out of line with, again, mitigating risks, like there's only, you know, you're still, there still is risk there. Right. Um, but yeah, I would be curious to know what kind of changes they'll make going forward. And maybe we'll see that at like some, another 70.3 or Ironman Florida too. Right. So. It's supposed to be a few weeks earlier. And then obviously it's also, you know, if the community still maintains like a relatively low infection rate, if there's not community spread, if, if all these Ironman athletes didn't go and get waiters sick at restaurants. And so in the community, do you guys, I mean, how has everyone been uh, receptive of this? Of the race? Yeah. Um, you know, I think everyone seemed pretty open to it. Uh, a lot of people that I know were surprised mm-hmm. when I said that it went off because there hasn't been a lot that has happened around here. Um, you know, we were one of the hot spots earlier in the summer. And so I think everyone's pretty aware and cautious. And um, from what I saw, the community except like was pretty excited to have something going on. You know, Tempe Beach Park usually is a place that 
every single weekend is some kind of huge event. So it's been weird to not have anything over there. So a little bit of uh, money into the tourism or whatever I'm sure they were excited (laughs) about. But yeah, I mean, it was a smaller scale compared to some of the stuff that happens at that location. But generally, I think people are excited to see a race happening. For sure. Well, well, thank you so much for explaining everything to us. And guys, I will include a link to her story outlining all the protocols in our show notes so you can kind of get all the pictures, see what transition looks like, see what A stations look like, get all the details. Thanks so much, Kelly. All right. First, we're talking to Brad Culp, former editor of the magazine, one of our writers. And he did a story this week about Daytona, the PTO championships in Daytona. It's going to be the biggest race of the year. Why is it such a big deal, Brad? Why should we care? Um, well, it's essentially uh, when you look at the field, it's it's almost like it's replacing Kona. Um, plus, you're, you're bringing in a lot of short course talent. Um, it's uh, I, I mean, there's now going to be 58 men and 58 women. And aside from uh, Jan Ferdino and Daniela Reef, uh, who are both out due to injury. Um, it's it's the 58 uh, best men and women in the world um, across multiple distances. Um, and then you're you're putting them on a course uh, with a million dollars on the line. Um, you know, I think it's uh, it's going to make for a, a super exciting race. Um, and uh, yeah, just something we've never really seen before. We've never seen it's it's a kind of unique distance. It's, it's mostly like a, essentially a half Ironman, uh, a little bit shorter. Um, so, you know, it's kind of up in the air if that's going to favor some of the short course guys who are moving up to, to this distance or some of the longer course guys who, who are kind of coming down. Um, yeah, just a lot of questions up in the air, a lot of money on the line, um, and just the, the best field we've seen maybe ever. So they're doing it in the Daytona, for people who don't know, in the Daytona Speedway, it's a big deal in like the race, in the race car world, because it's like a track, it's like two, two and a half miles all the way, and they're doing a lot of it within that, right? Where they're biking and running inside there. Yeah, so there's a, a little man-made lake uh, in the infield uh, at Daytona Speedway. Um, so that's where the swim is. Um, the bike, uh, just looking, it looks like it's mostly around the speedway, but it also um, it loops around the, the infield. Um, there's a road track in addition to the circular, uh, you know, typical NASCAR track. Um, so they're utilizing both of that. Um, and then the run, again, is, is pretty much around the oval um, with a little bit of, of that road track worked in. Um, so super flat, super fast. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see how they control drafting with so many athletes, uh, on the track at once. Um, and, you know, challenge is really big on their 10 meter rule instead of the, the seven meter rule. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if that's really tightly enforced and, and how many penalties are handed out and how that ultimately affects the race. Um, yeah, yeah I don't see a- how that's possible. I, cause I did this race like three years ago. And I think there were 25 of us and it's still like a lot of people in a two and a half mile loop. There's no, they cannot possibly do them anyone of them at the same time. I don't see how that would work. Yeah. And especially like you've got so many strong IT swimmers there. Right. Like there's just going to be a big group out of the water. Um, yeah. I, I essentially see like, you know, three big groups coming out of the water altogether. Um, you know, maybe a minute between them. And, and I don't know how those groups then become, you know, spread out. Um, yeah, it should be really interesting. I think it's going to look a lot like the the kind of like the opening eight to 10 miles in Kona where you see um, there's just a lot of drafting and, and Ironman basically just kind of lets it fly um, because there's nothing you can do. Like they're all coming out together. They're all you know almost as fast as one another on the bike. 
Um, it just takes some time for that to spread out, and I think that'll be the case in Daytona too. Oh, those are the worst eight to ten miles. That's not what you, that's not I, you want. I know. <laughs> I, know I, I I always like photographing those miles because like there's just so much blatant, especially like the, when the age groupers come out. Like oh, I, I mean, you can tell the referees are, have been told just to like throw up their hands. I like, actually was told literally drafting's not enforced in those eight to ten miles. So yeah, <laughs> it, it is it is absolutely not. Um, yeah, the, I, I I haven't seen a penalty like until you get out onto the Queen right, K. Right, right. Um, so okay. yeah, it'll be inter- interesting to see how Challenge uh, um, and PTO approaches that. Um, so this is, okay. I mean, you mentioned it's a combo of things uh, or a combo of athletes because, because uh, okay, when I did, it took me like three hours and these people are obviously much faster than me. So it's like significantly shorter than a half, but not but not as short as an Olympic. And we're getting ITU stars. We're getting 70.3 stars. We're getting long. And we've never had that before. There's never really been a race where it's like this weird combo and they put a million dollars behind it. So it, and there are no other races this year. So this is definitely the biggest race of the year. Everyone wanted a spot. Getting a spot on the start line was kind of complicated. Explain to us like how that worked. Um, well, apparently it's still working. Um, <laughs> you know, they they had. I thought the race was capped at, at 100. Um, they're now. It looks like they're giving out um, 16 additional uh, special invitations. Um, so I'm sure there's uh, some pretty uh, some pretty fiery debates. Um, the athletes. I know I was uh, texting with one athlete yesterday, an ITU athlete who just reached out like, "How do I get a spot?" How and do I, I get I a have, spot? I have no idea. <laughs> and he's like, "Well, can you can you uh, can you vouch, Marie? Can you can you tell someone PTO? Um, this is someone who's never done a draft legal uh, non drafting race, right? Um, so I'm just like, well, "How am I going to vouch for you? Like, you've <laughs> never done. You've never run more than 10k. Um, you know, a, a great athlete, uh, but." Uh, yeah, I've had a couple of people um, who aren't who aren't in the field reach out in the last couple of weeks, like asking, like, how do I get in the field? And honestly, I have no idea. Um, so, so, OK, it, so it's a little bit of a mess. But in reality, there was sort of a system, a sort was of a process. Yeah, yeah, the top 40 men and women in the PTO rankings um, got automatic slots. Um, and then they did uh, 20 additional wildcard slots um, that they've been announcing for the last couple of weeks. Um, so that was the field of 100 um, and now they're going to add 16 more. So we're going to have 116 total. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know how these ones are being given out. Um, and it's weird that challenge is the one challenge. Daytona is the one announcing them and not PTO. Hmm. Um, like PTO hasn't even mentioned it. Um, it's just kind of strange it's how just the, odd, yeah. the communication is going out. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's definitely a couple of athletes who, weren't in that initial hundred that I think should be at the race. Um, Sarah so true hopefully... is the big absence to me. Yeah. That's huge. Missing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I messaged her right away when the final wild cards came out, um, just to ask like, did, did you turn down a slot or did they not offer it? And she, she said it wasn't offered. Um, and obviously she's been a little outspoken, um, not even like really negative about PTO. Yeah. She's just like asked questions. Mm-hmm. Um, like what's your business model? Um, <laughs> Simple questions, question. obvious questions. Yeah. yeah. Which is like the most common question I get asked when I talk to anyone in the industry is like every conversation comes up like, how are they going to make money? I'm like, well, I don't know why you're asking me, man. Like this is, I, I have no idea. Um, I, I don't, you know, as much as I love triathlon, I don't see TV being a very viable um, business model. Um, if, if it was a, a viable business model for a triathlon, then ITU would be getting insane viewership. Um, and that's ultimately just a, a better TV product. Um you know, especially now that they're doing some some sprint races, like that's the kind of triathlon that's good on TV. That's Super League. Um, I just don't see like long course racing being like 
like you're just not going to get a lot of people tuning in no matter what. Like that's just the reality. So then you have to look at other avenues if you want to make money. Um, so that's just my thought. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So, so there's, so yeah, she has asked those questions. She's been one of the few athletes that's asked those questions. She kind of notably was missing from the, from the wild card spots. Um, but otherwise they gave the top 40 people who turned down their slots. It rolled down in their rankings. Sarah true wasn't in those because she had like a terrible year last year and all that, but then, and then they did wild card spots and now they're doing these weird extra wild card spots. Some of which have been auto qualifiers. I saw a couple of people auto qualified at the great Floridian this past weekend. Some of which have been <laughs> kind of like random sort of appointments. I don't even, right. And yeah, it's weird. Special yeah. invitations. Special um, invitations. Yeah. Sounds great. Um, so yeah, I think they've done like three or four special invitations so far. It looks like we're getting like one or two a day. Um, so, I mean, over the next week or so, we're going to find out who's rounding out that field and who knows. I mean, for maybe they'll add another 10, 15 people before this is over. Um, at this point, they might as well just open it to like every single pro triathlete on earth. Like if you want to yeah, come to not? Florida, yeah. just, just show up and you can race. Um, I, yeah, I thought I thought about asking for a spot. I'm sure they give me one. It'd be great. Yeah. 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 So who so now that we kind of know who's racing, who should we watch out for? How can we watch like who is in the mix here? Um, there's going to be live coverage on the, uh, challenge Daytona website. Um, I don't know if it's pay-per-view or not, if they're doing like, uh, like the ITU model. Um, mm -hmm. I thought to look into that, but they, uh, I know they're partnering with, uh, with the NASCAR, uh, TV crew. So I think that that'll be really interesting to follow because obviously they're, they've got a lot more capabilities and experience, uh, doing live events than, um, you know, traditional triathlon broadcasters. Um, so um, yeah, you can tune in at Challenge Daytona on December 6th. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it's, it, I, I really don't know how to, um, like, uh, someone asked me on Twitter yesterday, like, you know, who are your picks for the podium? And I kind of just like shot him out at random, um, not knowing that, that Ferdino isn't racing. Um, so I think if he was, he would definitely be, obviously he's, he's Jan Ferdino. He's the greatest triathlete ever. Um, you know, he would be in the mix. Um, I feel like this kind of course really suits Javier Gomez really well. Mm. Um, you know, he's, he's obviously strong across all three sports. Um, but he's, there are a lot of guys in this field who can ride it quite a bit faster than him. Um, and I think that'll be somewhat neutralized with one, what I foresee being a lot of drafting, uh, and two, it's just the super flat course. Um, so I don't know that, that, you know, those super bikers are going to be able to put a lot of time into him. Um, so I definitely watch out for, uh, um, for Javi, uh, Christian Blumenfeld, um, it, this is a course that's kind of made for him too. He, he, uh, he went like 325 at Bahrain last year. And, and this is a pretty similar course in terms of just flat and super fast. Um, so he's definitely one of the ITU guys to, to keep an eye on. Um, I'm super curious about, uh, Vincent Luis. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, we just don't know, like he's obviously the best pure runner in the field. Um, but I have no idea what he can do on a TT bike. Um, he's, he uh, he rides pretty hard in, in the IT races. He's not a guy to really like sit in the pack. Like he's one of the guys mm -hmm. pushing the pace. Um, he does really well at Super League on the bike. Um, so he's obviously got a lot of power on the bike. Um, it's just a, a matter of if that can really translate to to a time trial. Um, and then Alistair Brownlee. Like if I had to pick one guy to win, I'm just going to pick Alistair pretty every much every time. Race. Yeah, because okay. yeah, then like <laughs> half the time you're going to be right. Um, like I'm just going to keep picking him to win Hawaii every year that he races, and I know. <laughs> Like eventually it'll happen. 
Um, so yeah, if I had to pick one of the men's race, it would be Alistair. Um, you know, I think Christian will be right there. I'm going um, with Vincent. I think Vincent's yeah. going to do it. Yeah. Don't count against him. I know. I mean, you look at the form that he has and, and the amount that he's raced this year, like he's, he's clearly, he's not going to be coming in rusty. Um, and I think that's going to be a big help. Whereas a lot of these guys, um, who are always super strong, like just not racing for, you know, an entire year will, uh, I, I think definitely have an effect and just like that, that peak little bit of fitness that, you know, that one or 2% that separates these guys. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, I think Vincent will be super interesting and mm-hmm. yeah, I'm excited to see what he and a couple of those other ITU guys can do. Um, um, yeah, I'm not betting against the ITU guys for sure. And then the women's side, I actually think it's a lot more interesting because you do have a lot of 70.3 specialists. Like I think Holly, <laughs> um, it's definitely going to be like in last year you had Lucy Charles and Paula Findlay like step for step the entire race. And those are two very different athletes, like from very yeah. different spectrums. Throw Holly in there, throw a bunch of like Flora Duffy and Georgia Taylor Brown in there. And like, yeah, it gets interesting. Yeah. Uh, Flora and, and uh, Georgia are the two I'm most interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're even like, and they're both come from ITU, but they're both super different athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, like obviously um, Florida does really, really well when there's a hard bike course, a technical bike course. Right. Um, whereas Georgia's not so strong on the bike. Um, so I feel like if Florida gets away on the bike, um, I mean, and she could even ride away from, uh, a Lucy Charles or Holly Lawrence. Um, you know, if she, if she has a little bit of a lead to start the run, I think she's going to be pretty tough to beat. Um, if Georgia's close, I got to believe that, it, you know, this isn't like an extraordinarily long distance for her. Um, and it's like an eight mile up. run or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So, so that, um, I got to believe that she would be, she'd be my pick to have the fastest run split. Um, so if she's close, um, yeah, I would love to see a situation where like George is running down Flora, you know, in the final kilometers and setting up for a, a good sprint finish. Um, I mean, normally yeah. I don't bet against Flora Duffy like ever in anything, but I still feel like this is going to be, you know, Holly Lawrence, watch out for her, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think that, um, I, I mean, if she, she's one of the few who can get off the bike with, uh, with a decent lead, um, Lisa Norton's the other really interesting wild card in there. Um, I kind of, when I sent those picks out on Twitter, I just kind of picked Lisa, um, for the win just cause her form's really strong and I could see her just having a massive lead. Um, maybe not massive on someone like, like Holly Lawrence. Um, but it, you know, if she has a lead of a couple minutes in, in T2, she's going to be really hard to run down. Um, it's funny cause then Lisa responded to me, um, that, uh, that I have too much faith in her and that it's going to be a draft fest essentially. Um, <laughs> you know, she, she was like, maybe something like maybe I'd have a chance if there's like a 20 meter drafting rule. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, yeah, I'm with you. I think that the really, really fast runners, uh, this is going to favor, um, but uh, there's going to be a lot of people trying to run Holly down, you know, if she's out front, uh, you know, with with someone like Lisa Norton. Um, I think that, you know, either way, it's going to be a super thrilling finish. Like we're going to see more like an ITU style finish where we're talking about seconds and not like an Ironman or half Ironman finish where we're talking about minutes. Um, so maybe that'll make for awesome television and they'll get a whole bunch of sponsors and they'll prove me and Sarah true wrong. Um, there you go. See, this yeah. is their plan. This is their secret plan, Brad. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, that's why you should Daytona's biggest race of the year. We have a story online, Red Road, kind of laying out why you should care, who to watch. I will share the link in our show notes here. And we will definitely be covering it more as we get closer because biggest race of the year. Definitely want to watch it. Kind of the uh, the only race of the year. Kind of, um, yeah. At least the only huge one to, to look forward to now. Um, so, yeah, fingers crossed for uh, for more races in the spring. Um, 
but yeah, for now, this is definitely the, uh, the Super Bowl of 2020 for triathlon. Sure. And so we just went super in the weeds for all those people who really want to, you know, wish that there was a, a super in the weeds triathlon podcast out there. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, Brad, for breaking that down for us. Absolutely. Anytime. Many of us have heard of supplementing our training with CoQ10 for energy and recovery. Well, MitoQ is a unique form of CoQ10 specially engineered to get inside the mitochondria to help create cellular energy and neutralize free radicals. It helps improve recovery, immunity, digestion, sleep, and stress, all of which will help you train better and be healthier. To learn more about the unique formula of MitoQ, independent clinical trials, and athlete testimonials, visit www.mitoq.com. That's M-I-T-O-Q.com. All right, this week we're talking to our own editors. We realize, you know, we have amazing athletes on staff. Emma Kate Lidbury is a six-time 70.3 champion, two times top 10 in the world. And EK, sorry, that's what we call you, EK. Mm-hmm. You only started doing triathlon after you were supposed to cover a local race for the newspaper where you worked at the time, right? Yeah, that's right. I was, It was my second newspaper job. I was kind of fresh out of grad school uh, and yeah, working on a regional newspaper in the UK. I was the, in the newspaper I was working for, they were sponsoring a, uh, a big local race, uh, the Blenheim Triathlon, which is actually at the time was second only to the London Triathlon in the UK. Um, and they were just keen to get some word out about it. And one of the ways they wanted to do that was for uh, the newspaper I was working on was like the, the media partner. And they wanted to, to throw a journalist into the race and they do like a first person account of, of what it's like to train for a triathlon and what it's like to do one. And um, I was like the new girl in the newsroom. So and I was kind of too quiet and shy to say no. And they also <laughs> knew that they also knew that I'd been a swimmer as a kid. So uh, and I was one of the very few uh, I was one of the very few journalists in the newsroom that didn't go to the pub at lunchtime. So, right, uh, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> they thought you might not die if they made you do the triathlon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's how I got into it. And it was, to be honest, though, at university in the UK, it had been something I'd always wanted to try, but I'd never been able to afford to do it. So um, it was a great way. Like, and, and the newspaper had a ton of sponsors, so I got all this kit for free. <laughs> it was a lifetime of getting. It was a start of what became a lifetime of getting kit for free. <laughs> so you did this race, and then you were like, "Man, this is awesome! I'm going to keep doing it." Basically, yeah. so essentially. The race went really well and it completely reawakened all of my competitive instinct that I'd had. I'd been a competitive swimmer uh, from the age of 11 all the way up to college. And so, um, and I, yeah, it just, I just completely loved it. I was, as soon as I crossed the finish line, I was entirely hooked and I definitely can understand and appreciate when people say like, oh, I got the tri bug. It's like, I completely, it completely consumed me and I just couldn't get enough of it. I started entering more races buying all the gear, you know, just doing what triathletes do. I just, but yeah, it was just, uh, it was just something that just captured me and consumed me right from that very first race. So here's my question. Did you know how to ride a bike before? Cause obviously we get, I mean, our readers all the time, we totally hear this all the time. People do their first race. They love it. But that, that doing the first one, you knew how to swim. So you had that, but did you yeah. know how to ride a bike? Were you a runner? No, I had jogged. I, I would call myself a jogger. I could <laughs> jog to keep fit. Uh, and I had done that intermittently through college and, uh, but riding a bike, yes, as a kid, I used to tear around on a BMX Okay. Uh, and I'd had mountain bikes and, but I didn't know how to ride a road bike and clip in and all that kind of stuff. So 
And in actual fact, there are many of my friends who still remind me about how I would go out on training rides, which would be 15 or 20 mile rides, and I wouldn't be able to ride and pull a bottle out of a cage or clip out of my pedals or so it was a very steep learning curve to start with, as many of us experience. Right. You were were you one of the ones who was telling me you did the thing where you had one foot clipped in and one foot not clipped in mm-hmm. so you wouldn't fall over? Yep. Okay. Yep. <laughs> yep. Good well, way to get re- injured. I don't recommend yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But you obviously you did pretty well because a couple of years later you were like, screw the newspaper world. I'm going to become a pro triathlete. Yeah, it was kind of crazy, actually, because ever since I've been a little girl, all I dreamt about was working on in the UK we call it Fleet Street which is like the new you know, national what, what was then was uh national newspaper working on national newspapers that was all I wanted to do and very very over a period of a couple of years that dream felt, started to fall away and this dream of trying to race professionally and uh, seeing how good I could be as a triathlete just kind of took over and I was paring down my hours at the newspaper uh, to, to the point where I think I was like working three days a week in the newsroom and then the rest of the time I was training and you know just trying to, trying to make the most of training time. Um, and I was also starting to freelance for a bunch of different triathlon magazines. There was a time in the UK where there were four different triathlon hmm. publications. So and over, t- over the period of a few years, I basically started to train and race um, almost full time and work in the newsroom less and less. It's not, it is one of those jobs though. I mean, there are jobs people have that are very defined, you know, nine to five and news is not one of them. It's, and so it's very hard. I, from a personal experience, I have found to do both. And so you just, so eventually you just had to pull the plug, right? You just were like, well, yeah. Yep. And I can remember walking in. So the editor that had first thrown me into the triathlon was the editor that I walked in with my resignation letter. And, um, and I said, Oh, I'm going to go and be a professional triathlete. And he kind of like, rolled back in his chair and kind of was like okay I'll keep your job open um, <laughs> <laughs> and so we've had this and that was in 2008 uh and so yeah and he's obviously he's he uh tracked my career and followed my yeah still follows me um does he still yeah, have your job I, open for you is it still if you want to go back no I don't think there are any jobs in, in newsrooms many <laughs> so no it's okay he closed yeah he closed that loop uh, a few a few years ago I think but um yeah, no, it was just it was one of those. I guess the biggest the, the bigger lesson was uh, taking taking a leap and you know seeing how good can I be. And the only way you find out is to go and do it. Um, and it was the first of many jumps that I took where you don't necessarily know how you're going to land, but you figure out how to fly on the way down. Yeah. And that was kind of what it was. And I mean, for a lot of people, kind of navigating that: how do I become a pro athlete? How do I? What does that entail? What does that mean? requires you know people to help you figure that out yes definitely yes. for sure you've got to have there's all like with you know with, with so many things there's an element of luck and there's an element of surrounding yourself with the right people and I was very fortunate to to do that um but yeah making that transition from age grouper to pro is not an easy one um especially if you know you, you, you want to be financially um especially if you want to be you know so support yourself and be financially <laughs> independent so make some money eat make some money which you need to be able to do <laughs> right right and so you ended up just moving to the moving to LA like uh, I don't know what the word hooking up with a coach down there which has to add a whole nother element to it. I mean now obviously people do that but this was 12 years ago there wasn't Holly Lawrence hadn't moved to LA yet it wasn't a thing to do <laughs> yeah it was a big move yeah no but yeah I left the newspaper in 2008 and stayed in the UK until 2011 racing training and racing full-time but I would spend a lot of time abroad 
during that time. Um, and then into, I was working with Matt Dixon, Purple Patch in 2000, from 2010, 2011. And he basically, it was just becoming harder and harder to evolve as an athlete and develop that kind of coach athlete relationship when he's constantly eight hours. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I was, there was an eight hour time difference and uh, we got to the end of 2000, the t- 2012 season. I was getting some good results. I think I'd won three or four 70.3s by then. And he was like, Hey, okay, the next step is for you to move to the U S and one of my closest friends and training partners, Rachel Joyce had already done that. And she'd already been kind of like, Hey, come on, come over, come over. And I was like, are you insane? <laughs> at the time I was in the long-term relationship, we had a house, we had a cat, we, all my family and friends, my entire support network was all there in the UK. And so taking another, taking another jump was like a big deal. Um, but I did it and it was the best thing I ever did. And uh, yeah, so I moved to LA. Um, Matt Dixon was working closely with Jerry Rodriguez at the time at Tower 26. And he had a really, really cool group of uh, pro athletes who are all working together in Santa Monica. And I, yeah, so I became part of that, um, became part of that Tower 26 Purple Patch community in back in 2013. And um, yeah, stayed in California for four years. I think you told me you uh, so were hooked up with some homestay. You were going to stay for, and you ended up just like staying in their beach house for a while. Yeah, that was <laughs> that was a great story. Um, yes, yeah, so, so the the community at Tower Twenty Six is pretty special. And when I I think Jerry reached out to everybody at Tower Twenty Six on behalf of me to say, hey, we've got a pro athlete coming in from the UK. Like, can somebody put her up for two weeks, two or three weeks? Because then we were going to a camp in Kona for the next two weeks. And, um, I stayed there for, I was supposed to stay there for three, three weeks and I stayed there for three years. <laughs> I, I became part of the family. Um, so hello, that's, that was Caroline and Andy Bird. Andy Bird at the time was the, um, chairman of Disney International. So you could imagine what their house was like. Okay. So, so it's they, not a bad they setup. Had, they had me in the West Wing and they didn't really even know I was there most of the time. I don't think <laughs> I was like this pet triathlete that they would like, yeah, they were, they were amazed by. Wow, this creature swims and bikes and runs this much and it's, sleeps this much. So it's a good setup. Yeah. You got it. It's a, it doesn't sound it too terrible. Good. I coped. <laughs> All right. So how was uh, uh, triathlon in LA different from triathlon in the UK? Obviously, like UK, you said there were four triathlon magazines at one point. I mean, mm. it's weirdly a big deal there. I don't mean weirdly, yes. but you know, for yes, for no, the size, it is. yeah, yes. Yeah, triathlon in the UK. The main, my main motivation for moving um, was the weather. Mm. I mean, trying to train through the British winter was just ugly. And you know, it's no, it's, it's absolutely no coincidence that you have the likes of the brownies who are just tough as nails because they just tough it out. They tough it out for the majority of of the winter in the UK. And the weather is just horrible. I had no, I had no real community or training partners, and it was just getting tougher and tougher to get out the door. Um, and so large, in large part, it was moving to L.A. was partly a career development move. You know, the opportunities in the U.S. are so much bigger for professional athletes. Um, and the sponsorship opportunities were definitely greater. But it was also just about weather and climate <laughs> and facilities and coaches and access to, you know, better training groups and, and training partners. So, um, but yeah, my first, few, my first few weeks in L.A., I couldn't quite believe were real. You know, like swimming every day. It was it was very very rarely colder than seventy degrees, and every day it was just just felt like I was on vacation. So okay, 
I actually am always like, I think it's funny people think LA is a great training spot. There's so much like traffic and riding the PCH is kind of, Yeah, PCH is horrible. Um, But in retrospect, it's made me very grateful for whenever (laughs) I do ride on nice roads. But um, I guess, yeah, I I just love the weather. I love the swimming. I love love being able to swim in the ocean there. I became an ocean swimmer when I lived there. Um, And the riding, I mean, yeah, when you get used to PCH, which you probably shouldn't get used to PCH, that's probably not the right thing to say. But um, but the riding, once you're away from the traffic, like the Santa Monica Mountains are right. stunning. Some of my favorite rides, some, some of you know, out there. Um, and yeah, I used to do a lot of my long runs along the beach. Um, but mm. yeah, then I then I kind of came to Boulder for what was meant to be a few weeks training camp, and then I never left Boulder. So I feel like I'm sensing like a theme here. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit of a nomad, really. Aren't I? <laughs> so do you feel like it made a difference when you were like all right i'm moving to the u.s it's gonna like change my train you know this is gonna be it do you feel like it really it changed things it up the game it yes absolutely yeah yeah, yeah because suddenly you're surrounded by athletes of, of the same caliber or, or greater or better than you which is what you always need to do in order to improve uh and you had i had eyeball to eyeball coaches you know coaches who i could see who could see me and i could see them every day de- for every session which makes a huge difference too um and it just I suddenly, be- I definitely just became much more invested in my career. Uh, I'd, I'd made a career-changing or a life-changing, career-changing move, and it was, it was important. And so, yeah, I, I definitely, yeah, it was definitely a, a good move, a big move, a bold, like you say, like a bold move back then. But um, it, it helped me learn a lot about immigration law. <laughs> Are you an expert now? Are you like advising? I wouldn't say I'm an expert, no, but I, I'm here legally in case anybody okay. asks. How does that work for, I know for all the, because there are, we live in Boulder now, there are all these foreign athletes, but mm. you have to have like some kind of a visa or like one of your sponsors has to vouch for you, right? Yeah, you have to have a petitioner mm-hmm. um, and somebody, somebody has to say that you're, you know, um, you're here for. I think I think the visa. So the athlete visa I have, I have a different setup now. But the the athlete visa I had was you're like an interne- internationally recognized alien. Nice. Is like the, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you have to prove international results, and um, you need somebody, whether it's your coach or your you know your team, um, to be your petition or, or a sponsor to be your petitioner and vouch for your whereabouts, vouch for you know you you being here. Basically, it's not easy. It, it's not easy. But, no, no, yeah. I remember somebody explaining this to me. And Holly Lawrence got stuck in LA because she had to sort all this out a little while ago. It's a thing. It's a whole thing that you never really think is. about. Yeah. It is. Um, but yeah, and it's and it's obviously worthwhile to do. People, um, but it's yeah, it's not straightforward. But it's very it's it's very worthwhile doing. Okay, and so now you're in Boulder. Mm-hmm. Big controversial question: Boulder, LA, which is better? Boulder. <laughs> Easy. Easy. I can't stand the traffic in LA. That that did drive me nuts eventually. Okay. Of course, as we say this, it's like snowing outside in Boulder, and I'm not sure I can swim or bike or run. I swam yesterday. <laughs> it was nine degrees Fahrenheit yesterday, and I swam. So I was quite proud of that. Okay. Outside. Obviously, the water's heated, but yeah, it's pretty cool. I, I do like swimming in the snow. I don't bike and run in the snow generally. Uh, yeah. But Boulder does have, I, I, I'm a fan. I do think it offers a lot. Okay. Okay. So besides like the whole, you know, having a community, having more athletes around you to help you improve, what else do you think really made the difference once you start, you know, once you wanted to like start really winning races, be in the top 10 in the world, you know, up your game like that? 
Yeah, I think there's also an element of being in the US and being, mm. you know, we, we see this at triathlete, right? If um, triathlon tends to be fairly US focused or US centric, Ironman's based here. Obviously, uh, European athletes European athletes are there are obviously plenty of them, but they're also aware that when you're out, if you do anything outside of outside of the US, it has to be pretty damn big to get noticed inside inside the US. Um, that was and that was another motivator for sure, uh, and to, and in terms of being financially successful, it's a big it's a big motivator. Hmm. Um, but really, those are the those are the key things. What do you think? I mean, do you feel like you improve? Was there any change you made in your training or your lifestyle to help you improve as you you know you wanted to get better and faster? I think, um, I mean, it's something we hear all the time, but mm-hmm. building, you don't necessarily train more, but you train smarter and you recover, you, you, you should recover and, you know, recovery and sleeping more mm-hmm. was something that if you have zero work commitments, there is no reason why you can't pay full attention to training and re- well, recovery from training, I would say. Right. You so, can take those naps. We, we would all like it. We would ideally like it if you don't take afternoon naps now while you're yeah. managing editor of Trashly. When, <laughs> when you see me slope off and disappear <laughs> from 3 p.m. to 3.30, you know what, what's happened. Right. Old habits die hard, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So you were top 10 at 70.3 Worlds twice, right? Yeah. That was when like 70.3 Worlds has changed significantly in the last few years. It's gotten a lot mm-hmm. bigger. What was it like, you know, 2011, 2012, 2013? It was great. It was very exciting because that was around the time where um, 7.3 Worlds had transitioned from Clearwater to Vegas. Mm. And there was a lot of excitement around that Vegas race. It was positioned um, much later in the year than uh, Kona, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And so, um, no, it wasn't. It was earlier, right? It was September. Yeah. Um, and so, I don't know, it was just, it was just fun. It felt, it felt like a real... Oh, this might be a controversial thing to say, but it felt like a real 70.3 world championship. You okay. know? Yeah, Whereas no, now, I think that's, I think now because it's often, yeah, it, it's a lot of people tend to just focus on Kona and drop, drop 70.3 out of their, uh, mm. 70.3 worlds out of their, out of their schedule. Um, whereas yeah, it was fun. It was fast. It was dynamic. Like those, some of those Vegas races were, uh, yeah, I just remember having a lot of fun racing, racing hard and, yeah, racing in the desert where it was like 110 degrees at time. There was one one year where it was insanely hot, but um, there was one year it was insanely cold too. I think, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was weird. In fact, there were consecutive years where it was crazy hot and, and crazy cold. Um, and then you could finish the race and go party in Vegas. And was that a thing? Did you guys? It was. Yes. Okay. There's photo evidence of uh, I think it was me and Will Clark and um, oh man, I've just completed Brad Carlefelt. And, and a bunch of others, but I've only got a photo. I can't remember what happened entirely. It was a very fun night. <laughs> okay, okay. I feel like there's stories here, right? Yeah, there's always stories. <laughs> there's always stories. Um, swiftly on. <laughs> uh-huh. What's your craziest? Because you obviously traveled all over the world. You all kind of races. What's your craziest travel race story? Oh, that was probably seventy point three Phuket in Thailand, which um, was always at the end of the year. It's now. I think it since became Challenge Challenge Phuket, but. And it was late enough in the year when they were getting hit with serious, serious uh, rainstorms, monsoon type rain. And I remember being out on the bike course on that race and the rain started. And oh, my God, by the time we got back to T2, I'm not joking. You couldn't. The rain was up above like your bottom bracket, up above like it, it was getting serious. And we all the girls were all the girls in the front of the race were just helping each other. We were like, how do we? 
how, we just got to make sure we get to T2 safely. And then, so then the run just became like, and it, a lot of the run was kind of on grass or kind of trail. And so it just became like a, an epic cross country run. And it was one of those weird races where we were racing, but everybody was also like, are you okay? Are you okay? And there's like a, you know, a camaraderie and a level of a degree of care about each other that was, that was very nice. And, and you know, a lot of respect between um, competitors, but so that was probably one of the craziest races I remember where I was actually like, are we going to be okay? Is this going to be? Yeah. And then stuff like, you know, like races in and little races, like uh, I raced in St. Kitts and Nevis one year and that bike course was just like full of wild animals, you know, right. just like monkeys and cows. And that's always fun when they're like, oh yeah, watch out for the cows on the bike course. Yeah. And an, an entire, and then it was a Sunday morning. So an entire congregation par- like came out of church and the parking lot for the church was the other side of the road across the bike course. So you had like this whole congregation walking across the road during a, <laughs> during a half, half Ironman race. So that was kind of fun. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Just like lots of ridiculous funny stories that stay with you and in fact you kind of forget them until somebody asks you about them and then they're like oh yeah that happened but and now I mean now you're kind of our I mean our pro whisperer we count on you like you know everyone (laughs) you know everyone and it's because of all these stories I mean do you feel like you like everyone's still friends you still talk to a lot of people I didn't even think about the fact I know you and Rachel Joyce are like best buddies I didn't think about the fact that you guys are British you're not the British thing yeah. that you're together. Yeah. yeah. Rachel and I, yeah, there's a ton of stories there with Rachel. Um, Rachel and I, we first met in a, in the middle of a race in uh, just outside of London. And I, we were, we got out of the, it was an Olympic distance race. And I'd got out, we, we both got out of the water just back from the the front pack. So we, were, we formed our own like mini chase pack. <laughs> and I was trying to work on the front of the bike to bridge us back up. And I got a flat tire and I kept racing and she was like, pull out, pull out. But I just kept going and I wrote off like a pair of wheels. Um, <laughs> and that was how Rachel and I met. And we've been friends ever since. And we used to go on these random training camps in the middle of the British winter. We would go down to the Canary Islands and just spend like six weeks in a villa, just swimming, biking and running and reading books. You're like, why not? Why not? So that's how, yeah, that's a random tangent for you. But um, yeah, so but to answer your question, yes, I still have a lot of, dear friends who are friends that I made on the race course. Uh, Caitlin Snow remains one of my closest friends and um, yeah, like a ton of people. Um, and so some of them are in Boulder, some of them are all around the world, but um, yeah, the friendships you, you make on the race course, I think stay are, are pretty strong. Those bonds are strong and some of the suffering in training and racing kind of holds is the glue that holds those friendships together, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, it's good good fun times and so yeah it's, it's fun to keep into uh, the the beauty of this job now is that I, I get to stay involved in the sport and use all that experience and use all that expertise that's been amassed without <laughs> even realizing you have amassed it over all these years um hopefully to help our readers yeah see um all right so what would you tell our readers like what is the thing you felt like if you had known when you started well oh. you can have multiple things here if you want but what would you wish you had known when you started Oh, um, big question. I think, I mean, this is something that's still taken me time. It's still something that's still, still I get wrong now when I'm training and working, but, um, is really like managing, managing your own limits, you know, is like, uh, more is not better. You know, Mm -hmm. I think, if you and being very realistic, especially age groupers who are balancing work and life and all the rest of it, 
you know, it's great to have logged 16 or 18 hours on training peaks, but at what cost, you know, um, could you do 10 or 12 and be much, a, a much more well-rounded human being? You know, I definitely, one of the things I would definitely, if I could go back, one of the things I would definitely do better is, is, is that, um, you know, there were times when I definitely overdid training and still can, you know, when, when you consider, when you consider like everything else that you've got on your plate, you know, it's like we were talking about a long time ago, um, like, you know, training stress is stress and, right. or life stress is stress. Um, stress is stress. Yes. So that's, yeah, that's, that's, uh, one of the things that I probably didn't always get right. Yeah. And there's been a lot of stress in the world this year. I mean, this is what you just wrote a story in our most recent magazine mm-hmm. that everyone will be seeing about this kind of like, this year, even though you didn't have races, you didn't have training, there's been a lot of stress. Like everyone's been going through stuff. Don't yeah. avoid like taking off some time this winter. Yes, that's right. Like the train smart feature that we have coming up in the next issue, the November, December issue. Um, I interviewed a bunch of coaches for that, but Alan Cousins was very insightful and he was talking about our nervous system mm-hmm. and how our nervous system cannot differentiate between any different form of stress. If we are stressed because of a global pandemic or because of upcoming elections or because of financial worries or because of whatever, then it's no it's stress that our body receives and doesn't know what to do with until you process it correctly uh, in the same way that doing an interval session is or doing an Ironman race or whatever. And so learning how to manage your own nervous system and your own levels of stress is something that's very, very important. And that would be that would probably tag into that previous question, too, mm-hmm. about what would you do differently or better if you know if you could do it if if you could do it again? Um, yeah, it's it's been a tough year, and like, you mm-hmm. know, as we approach the off season, and everybody's like, "What do, what do I do now? <laughs> like, is it is it the off season, or should I keep going?" It's like, it's a, that's a tough question this year. Yeah, I know this. Uh, this year's been weird. This year's been weird, EK. It's been a little bit funky. Yeah. I've said that a few times, yeah. and it, and people are like, "You think?" <laughs> All right. So in your in your triathlon career, obviously, you moved to Boulder, you started training with Julie Dimmons. At what point? Because I mean, you wrote a book with Jerry Rodriguez a year ago, or more than a yeah. year ago, you that became our managing editor about a year ago. At what point were you like, okay, I think I'm done? Like, well, how did you decide mm-hmm. you were done? Yeah, you know, I'd always said, when I was racing, I'd always said, when my mind and body uh, are letting me know, and when my bank balance is letting me know, then it will be time. <laughs> and then just a lot of things in the universe happened, you know, like the book, pro- the Jerry book project came, came up as an opportunity. And it was like, and when I, when I realistically looked at that project, I knew that I wouldn't be really training full time and doing that project. Uh, and I was coming to the, I was just coming to the end of, I, I wasn't loving training in the mm. same way anymore. Um, but some of the joy of it had, had dropped away for me which was sad because it was something that it was a sport that I was so, so passionate about right from the, right from those first few races. Um, and so it was just an, it was just a, it was an interesting process because it was like, Oh, I'm not really, I'm not really loving this so much anymore. And I definitely was, I wasn't racing well as a result. And Mm -hmm. then this, you know, this awesome, this awesome project came up with Velo Press and I can remember meeting the publisher and just feeling so excited about it. And feeling like, oh yeah, this is the excitement that I used to have for racing, and like maybe this is a maybe I should listen to this. Um, and then away I went, you know. And it was and it was good because it was kind of like the opposite of what had happened in those early newspaper days. Like I was, I instead of instead of going from you know when I was working in the newsroom, I went from 
working, working, working and a little bit of training. And suddenly then it was like the, tri- the flip side of that was I was as I was exiting triathlon, it was like more and more, more writing and less and less and less training. And um, yeah, writing a book. Yeah, you, you I, I tended to just go to the pool in order to switch off, but I didn't ever <laughs> want to train, you know, so um, let's say I, I kind of it was like this big circle, really, in terms of like I entered triathlon through journalism and then I exited triathlon back into journalism or media. So it was I, it was it was very fortunate and it seemed it just always seemed to make sense. You know, it, it was just I came to a crossroads and I knew that I would still want to keep fit and keep active, but I just knew I didn't want to race at, at that level anymore. I mean, yeah, to be clear, I always love like retired pros. They're like, oh, I don't really do that much training anymore. I just do like, I don't know, 15, 20 hours a week. <laughs> I no I found the sweet spot now for me okay. it's like I can it's around 10 hours and if I do yeah and I, I definitely can't I can't do nothing I can't do 15 or 20 hours you would definitely be noticing you'd be like oh, okay where's your work this week <laughs> all right so I, don't there... wanna, I don't actually want to do that much either no you know? no I mean you did do Hawaii from home you did do our swim leg for Hawaii from home that was so. a lot of fun and let's yeah. all be clear, you beat Ryan Hall at an ultra marathon a couple months ago. <laughs> <laughs> but is there anything yeah. left? Like, I mean, is there anything you want to do in triathlon that you have left on the? You never did an Ironman, actually. Not that everyone has to do an Ironman. You don't have to do an Ironman. But is that like, oh, oh when yeah, you're 70, yeah. you're going to do? Oh, yeah, I did an Ironman. I did oh. uh, four. I mean, I do. Oh, why did four I think five. you did? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I did Ironman. My first one was Ironman Mallorca. I did uh, in 2015. I did Ironman Texas. I did. Oh. I did a few. Yeah, Ooh. it was just. It was a long way. Yeah. Especially when you're used to racing 70.3. That was kind of all my. That was always my focus. But I would like to do some races like. Nor- well, I was due to do Norseman this year. Right. Um, which so if that happens next year, I'd be I'd be half tempted by that. You know so. Something that's like triathlon, or that something that is triathlon, but it's a little bit different. You know, I, I don't think I'd be lining up to race another Ironman or half Ironman, but um, just some different extreme, extreme challenges, different challenges, things that get you excited. Right, you were supposed to do the swim run, like a year ago with me. I remember, but you got bit by a dog. Yeah, that yeah. was scary. Yeah, that's not yeah. good. So, no. but when swim runs return, then that would be fun to do. Hmm. Well, I know some of them have returned. I know I forwarded yeah, you. Uh... Oh yeah, you did. <laughs> I was oh, like, wow. hey, <laughs> I'll go back to my inbox. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you're thinking about some in- some some of the extreme ones, some of the swim runs, some of the interesting things happening now. Yeah. Hopefully yeah. next year we'll bring about some you know return of some of those races. And yeah, I think that they're the things that kind of excite me now. The different, mm-hmm. the different, you know, triathlon with a twist. All right. So here's my question. A lot of times we finish with a would you rather, but I'm not going to would you rather you. Here's my question for you since you <laughs> like, you know, finger on the pulse of all of triathlon. What are you most well, excited about in triathlon in the next year? Oh, wow. Yeah. Do you know what? The first thing that just leapt into my mind then was, is Kona next year. Yeah. Because after, I think after a year off, the first year in its 40 plus year history, I think that race is going to, I mean, that race to me is like this crazy frenzy of excitement that is just insane. I think after a year away, people are just going to be, I think that race is going to be next level epic. Um, so in the next year, I'm, I'll be excited about Kona. 
yeah, I think it I think it'll be very, very fast, very competitive. And we'll have lots of big parties, obviously. <laughs> Tell Brad Culp to blame for, yeah, ask Brad Culp about his flabongo. <laughs> He'll yeah, there's a story from Clearwater about that. I think circa twenty ten. Okay. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us, EK, and, uh, and, you know, telling us all about all about your triathlon days. You betcha. Thank you for having me. Thanks to EK, Liz, and Brad for chatting with us. And thanks to all of you for listening to a quick hit show. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next week with a more normal interview. And in the meantime, keep training and keep listening.